Welcome to TV Break, the PopBreak.com's monthly roundup of all the ins and outs in the world of TV. I am PopBreak Podcast Director, Alex Marcus, and joining me as always is the Editor-in-Chief of the PopBreak.com, Bill Buckin. How are you today, Bill? I'm sorry, my mind was elsewhere. I was thinking of this show where Wyatt and Kurt Russell played puppets and also they were married. Also with us today is... <laughs> <laughs> Also with us today, we're just not going to listen to what Bill has to say. Uh, instead, we're going to listen to our next uh, panelist, taking a break from his new job as Taylor Swift's personal NFL tutor. It's Pop Break TV columnist Josh Jernacki. Welcome back to the pod, Josh. Oh, let me tell you, here in Philadelphia, there are strong feelings about her going to the chief side of the force. Oh, I'm sure there is. Uh, and I'm sure she doesn't care. <laughs> <laughs> So that might be some bad news for everyone, but we also have good news. The strike is over. Well, one of the strikes is over anyway, and we have all the details on the historic contract that the WGA earned for its members after nearly 150 days on strike. We will also, as always, be checking in on the streaming wars and provide an in-depth, we mean in-depth, review of the Prime Video series Gen V, a college set spinoff of their smash hit R-rated superhero series The Boys. But before we do any of that, Bill, can you tell me and our audience what the best thing you watched on TV this month was? Yes, as my daughter tries to put a lucha mask on me with the New York Giants on it, I will tell you uh, multiple things that were great this month. Uh, you could check out Socially Distance every week where we uh, effuse very positively, Alex was our most recent guest, about Disney Plus's Ahsoka. Guys, this has just been a delight. I mean, it has been so awesome just to watch star wars in a prestige television setting frame whatever you want to call it it has every single week it is i don't even think i i don't think i've raced to a show to watch it especially now that we have the 9 p.m uh launch time which i think is an excellent move by disney plus giving you a destination time instead of like it's up at 3 a.m you know now it's 9 p.m every tuesdays yeah, I turn into, like, it's October, so sometimes my uh, impressions are, like, Count Dracula. It's just like, it's 3 a.m. and the Ahsoka is on. So, yeah, so that happened. But I really love that every Tuesday I'm like, 9 p.m., I gotta be home. I gotta watch Ahsoka because it is just that good. And they've allowed this show to you know longer run times than we've seen with the last few Star Wars shows. Rosario Dawson is amazing. Everything about this show is just what, I, Alex, I think this is, I'm just taking your words at this point, is what Star Wars should be. There's the attention to detail. There is enough connection to those who've watched Star Wars Rebels and the Clone Wars. And there's enough for those who haven't just to be able to jump right into the show and for it to be awesome. The performances, the stories, the effects are amazing. It takes us to new worlds we haven't seen before. I feel like they're using the volume with practical sets better than they have in a long time. And we have the finale this week, and I'm, I'm sad to see this show go. Uh, it's one of the few Disney Plus shows, I'll say, in recent memory, where I'm like, oh, I, I don't want this show to end. You know, because it's been so engrossing every single week. And it's, it again, it maximizes its minutes perfectly. Like we, you know, Alex, I know you hated Civil War. No, it's not Civil War, Secret Wars. I'm the guy who didn't like Civil War. Uh, is Secret Invasion. Secret Invasion. <laughs> Secret Wars is another, is another. Is it may or may not hate it. We'll find out. In we'll see. apparently. <laughs> apparently, when the ice caps are fully melted, that's when we'll get Secret Wars. Uh, I'm sort of joking. Uh, but yes, Secret Invasion was just like a rush to nothing. This takes its time and it, it never feels like it's just 
wasting your time. It's always has you enthralled. And I am so excited to see where this goes. Dave Filoni just like ha- should really just be given the soul keys to the king for Star Wars going forward because he knows it, he lives it, he breathes it. And his his work here has created the best Star Wars show Disney Plus has done since Andor last year. And even might be might be edging above that. I don't know. We'll have to see how that finale goes. But yeah, Ahsoka definitely... Josh, I wanted to save our favorite reality show that just premiered on Friday for you and all your glory, but you know that's on my list as well. But yeah, Ahsoka, number one with a bullet for me. Ahsoka's my number two. Um, I'll get to my number one soon. But Son I am, of a bitch. <laughs> I'm really liking Ahsoka. It is really in the contention for top ten show of the year for me, which is wow. really saying something. Yeah. Because, you know, I watch a lot of TV, um, and I hold those Star Wars shows to a higher standard than most, I think. So I'm really liking it. I, you can hear all of the things that I like and don't like about it by listening to Socially Distance last week, because I went on at length about that. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you're, what you didn't like was like, this is a bad show. It's just like, oh, Oh, if they had done this thing, it would have been that much better. Whereas, like, when you yes. came on the Secret Invasion penultimate show, you're just like, burn it. Burn it now. Let's yeah. never talk about it again. Yeah, there was no flamethrower in my appearance, which was nice. I am I was very happy to be able to be on uh, Social Distance and talk about something that I love, which I feel like has been, um, you know, few and far between lately <laughs> when it comes to <laughs> penultimate episodes of Disney Plus shows. But this is definitely, uh, it's an all-timer for me. It's I, I've said before, I think, you know, Andor is the best uh, Star Wars show, but Ahsoka is the best show about Star Wars. And I think that, you know, with one episode left, I think that is still true. It gives us everything that we're looking for in terms of the sort of balance between the character building, long character arcs, uh, dynamics playing out across relationships, across generations. It has all the sort of philosophical questions of how to be a good person, how to be an adult in the world, how to find your place, how to be a single individual in a sea of just like unrelenting, you know, chaos and destruction and hope and optimism. And and what do you grab onto and what do you fight for? All of that stuff is here. And I think it's really well executed. Uh, And I just love a lot of these characters so much. But Josh, what do you think? And well, David, sure, Tennant. David Tennant. Yeah, speaking of David Tennant, when you were saying about like you, you don't want the show to end, I was really feeling that sort of like oh, uh, I was there. Doctor, uh, I, was I don't want to go uh, vibes. Well, what was uh, your what was, what was your number one? Well, uh, sure, I'll go into that now, um, and and then I'll uh, I won't let oh, Josh cause... talk about Ahsoka. <laughs> Sad. No, I just want Josh to do twenty a, good, a solid twenty on Bake Off, and Alex is just like pulling his hair out, like strand <laughs> by cool. strand. I I'll make a pizza yet. for myself while you guys are talking about Big Off. No, but um, yeah, my number one this this month is definitely Reservation Dogs, the third season. The series finale just aired uh, last week when we we're recording this. Uh, it's an incredibly special show. It's one of the best series that I've seen in the last five years. It's really landed in a in a super interesting way. The second season ended in a way that felt very conclusive in terms of the character arc's journey in a very conventional sense. Not that the ending was. Conventional, conventional but the arc felt like it was coming to a, con- a conventional conclusion and what this third season has done is it's opened up the world and it's opened up the storytelling and it's placed our main characters in this wider tapestry of a community where generations are experiencing similar 
traumas and similar relationships and similar dynamics and similar struggles around who to, how to be a person, around how to interact with your elders, around how to interact with your community, how to support your friends, how to get in touch with your emotions and figure out what you want out of your life and how to let go of the things that have been haunting you in your past and how to draw strength and 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 optimism and and, and power from those experiences that may have uh, once tormented you it's it's incredibly um aspirational it's incredibly community focused it's such a deep layered uh story that they told over the course of this season and it ends just absolutely perfectly with basically every person who has ever been on this show coming together for a particular funeral of, a, of an important member of the community um, and sending them off in a way that shows such growth for all of these characters. Characters who we first met in the first and second season as these small side characters who we thought, oh, that's like a colorful uh, piece of the backgrounds. Like we now know them, we care about them, we understand their place in history within this community and within this, this wider family that they're all a part of. Um, and we get to see them all kind of reach this catharsis. And the catharsis isn't like, now we're ready for something new. It's kind of like, now we know how to live our life. Like we don't need to move on from this experience, this experience is in us and that's a good thing and we need to live in that experience not try to put it behind us and I personally needed that story in my life even though my experience is very different from uh, many of the people on the show I think a lot of people who have kind of slept on this show uh, would really benefit from watching it because it's just incredible it's light it's silly it's fun it's spiritual it's emotional it's civically oriented sometimes the penultimate episode of this series was basically a kind of send-up of the before trilogy with literally Ethan Hawke uh, as the co-star. So it's like, it's incredible. The cast that they get is incredible. The the young performers at the center are incredible. So many people I've never seen before are incredible in this show. I can't wait to see them in the future. I hope they get the opportunities that they deserve. And uh, it's just an incredibly special show that is really, it's just number two below Succession for me. Uh, definitely cleared the bear season two, which was a, an incredible season of TV as well. So it's we're really rich for half our short form TV shows this year and Reservation Dogs is at the top of that list. So really, really, really strongly recommend everyone who is listening to this, give it a chance, check it out and, uh, and you'd be doing yourself. But Josh, I know that you haven't seen that show. Uh, so do you want to tell us what show you did love so much this, this last month? Yeah. So um, I'm going to break Bill's heart because I haven't seen Bake Off yet. So I, I feel like you've had all that build up, Bill. And then I just... Mom totally dropped the ball on you so i uh sincerest apologies but uh i do have to go back to ahsoka because that is without a doubt the best thing i've seen on tv this last month um and, and everything both of you have said is absolutely true i think the the only thing i would really add to it is the um just like the incredible way it manages to weave all the different trilogies together or all the different eras of star wars together in a way that I don't think any of the other properties have done as well. Like we've had in the Mandalorian some references to um, like the Clone War era. Like we we've seen some flashbacks of Din Djarin. But like and we had uh, Christopher Lloyd just randomly being a separatist Camp Dooku stan uh, for reasons. But this has worked so much better um, in how it's looks at the entire franchise and getting the the cyclical nature of so much of the conflict and like making them make sense making it actually work um 
I know um, Bill and Amanda over on Social Digits are frequently uh, fond of referring to Dave Filoni as the uh, continuity doctor. But I'd say like it's more than that where it's not just like a continuity doctor. Like he is actually trying to make a cohesive story out of something yeah. that has been so unwieldy for so long. For all of his faults, George Lucas at least seemed like he was trying to tell something cohesive. And then since then, it's kind of got all twisted up. Dave Filoni is really trying to iron it out. It's not always, you know, 100% successful, but I think Ahsoka is the most successful it's ever been. Nice. Uh, Bill, since you didn't get a chance to hear about how fantastic Bake Off is, do you want to give it a couple minutes before we move on to our next segment? I would love to. So what I I love about this show, and I hope... Now, wait, before you get started, I want to let our audience know that I have been told, based off of a number of media reports, that Bake Off will be safe for minorities this year, and there will be no ethnic uh, food uh, episodes, and I think that's probably good for everyone's sake. But, yeah, Bill, that, that being was, said... That was uh, <laughs> very ridiculous last year. Uh, we there. I also like to break some news on this podcast that there is a bet that is going around... <laughs> That if Josh and I get more predictions for the Emmys right this year than Alex, Josh or I, I should say, then he has to watch Bake Off. The odds are stacked against me, given that I have to beat both of you. Yeah. Also, Your knowledge guy, is so much higher than ours. <laughs> I mean, as we've seen on this podcast, the person who knows TV the most is not Josh or I. But um, I, so what we're going to do is we're going to, if we lose, we have to watch Reservation Dogs, which is like really not a chore i mean it's just like okay here's a show i haven't watched yet great uh but yeah we will get alex eventually to watch bake off but i also cross some cross uh we're crossing the streams a little bit i will be joining roses and rejections uh this season to talk about uh bake off in the coming weeks so i'm very excited it's the first time i'll be on that because i refuse to watch the bachelor uh so (laughs) they found one for me uh so I don't know how this show does it, but every single year, it's the same damn form. And you're like, there's no way this is going to be interesting. It's, But it's like eating a good chocolate chip cookie. It's like you've eaten a chocolate chip cookie before, but it still tastes great. And it still has all the same warm, fuzzy feelings that you, you get from Bake Off. It still has like the human drama to it. So you do get invested in the character, the contestants this year. And all the food looks even better than before. And I love the fact that Netflix gives us something in the fall to watch every single week. This is the third year they're doing it. It releases every Friday. So it's become a household tradition for my wife and I. So we, we sit down and we watch. It's a great way to decompress after all the work. So I think it's uh, it's just one of my favorites. So if you've not gotten into Bake Off and you're like, oh, that's silly. It's just baking. Not like someone on this podcast would say. He's like, how can I get into that? When he watches all these, all these shows that make weep and they're just so sad. Just saying, Alex, one day you're gonna watch one of these shows and be like my god my co-hosts were finally right about something and that was Listen, the great british bake if, off if it's Doc also Holiday or whatever his name is makes Paul a Hollywood. that makes me cry or whatever i'll be i'll be there for it i mean apparently he's a very good baker himself so sure sometimes crying is good one though. <laughs> speaking of things that make us cry no just kidding uh it's time to listen to more uh commercials for the pop break podcasting network we'll be back after this Hello, I'm Daniel Cohen, former film editor of ThePopBreak.com, and I've got a Batman podcast for you. We discuss Batman's past, present, and future, and do a lot of rankings episodes. Yes, we rank the movies, villains, 
that's not all. We even ranked all the Batman movie trailers throughout history. Yes, we ranked Batman trailers. I dare you to find another Batman podcast that did that. So join me and frequent hosts Alex Marcus and Bill Bakken, as well as a plethora of Bat guests, as we discuss Batman and plenty of DC on film as well. Also, fair warning, I'm a BBS fan, but don't let that scare you away. Trust me, I get mocked and ridiculed more than the Martha line for taking that stance. So relax and tune in on the last Tuesday of every month on the Pop Break Today feed. Hey, it's Bill Bodkin, editor-in-chief of thepopbreak.com. Join myself, Amanda Rivas, Al Manorino, and a cavalcade of awesome guests on the Socially Distanced Podcast, the flagship podcast of thepopbreak.com. And it's Amanda Rivas. If you're a pop culture-obsessed nerd like we are, then you need to make Socially Distanced an integral part of your life. We talk all the things, Marvel, Star Wars, you know, everything on Disney Plus, pretty much, as well as the hottest trending shows and news in the world of pop culture. This is definitely Al Manorino and not Bill Bodkin. So listen to the Socially Distanced podcast every Friday on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and all your favorite podcast platforms. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe so we can eventually get Disney Plus to give us advertising money. Please, we could use the money. I, I have children. Welcome back, everyone. It's now time for our monthly news break segment, where we locate the top story in the world of TV and dig into it. This month, once again, the only story worth discussing has been the strike. But finally, we have some good news. Since we last spoke, the AMPTP and the WGA have agreed to a brand new contract, which is in the process of being ratified as we speak. The union is, broadly speaking, so proud of the deal that they negotiated for and so confident it has the backing of the full membership that they've officially ended the strike, even as a deal has not yet been formally ratified. Yes, that means writers are back to work. Very exciting. Paychecks will be resuming. Everything will be moving swingly from the writer's perspective, at least. I'm sure by now you may have heard some of the big ticket items covered in the deal. And you can tune in over to last week's Socially Distanced to hear my initial thoughts on the new deal alongside hosts Bill Blatkin and Amanda Rivas, have you ever heard of them? Uh, but indulge me for a moment as I dive a bit deeper on this landmark deal, guys. It's worth noting at the top that the WGA ended up pressuring the studios to triple their initial offer from back in May, which effectively translates to meaningful gains in nearly every category on nearly every topic from the studio's first offer. In most cases, those gains were substantial. We can break these topics down into a few broad categories. First, the meat and potato stuff. We saw 5% increases on existing residuals, 5% increase on weekly writer rates for TV, the creation of a new writer-producer tier, which is 9.5% above writers, uh, staff writers, story editors, and executive story editors um, in terms of the pace, uh, which was a big ask that the studio very much did not want to do. They didn't want to create this new, uh, this new tier. Um, they also created a second-step mandatory payment of 200% minimum for featured screenplays. What that means is basically when you write a screenplay, you always have to do at least one draft before after you submit it. Um, and uh, a long time ago, used, they used to get paid for that as well. Uh, at a certain point, that started to become an expectation that you would just do the rewrite of the draft without getting additionally uh, additional payment. 
they have now formalized this second step uh, payment in there, which is a pretty big deal because you're getting paid to do the work, so you should be getting paid to do it. Um, we also have mandates uh, that half the pay, half the fee paid upon the commencement of the feature screenplay, meaning that when they start writing, they have to get a payment for 50% of the total fee, 25% nine weeks later, and 25% upon completion. This is a pretty big deal because a lot of writers were not getting paid until the write, the script was done. That script could take weeks, if not months, to be completed, and then there is always a delay following that completion in, in the first place. So uh, people were going months without getting payment on work that they were doing. So spacing that out, it's kind of technical, but it does make a difference. Uh, we also saw increased funding to pension and health care fund, which is obviously very important. Um, and the AMPTP agreed to the WGA's foreign residuals payment table with only small adjustments after initially uh, significantly lowballing them in their offer in May. I won't get into the details on that because that's even further in the weeds than we need to get to. <laughs> but uh, no, it was a major gain by the union on that one. Uh, from there, we also had development room. If you guys remember our coverage of the strike initially, this was a big point in the writers' yeah. uh, mm -hmm. conversation about development rooms, how they felt like it was abusive, that they were being forced into these situations where one or two writers were being forced to break basically a season of TV and not getting paid for it because they were being called a development room instead of a writer's room. So they got major, major gains in this area as well. Studios initially refused to make counter proposals on this area, saying that it was a non-starter. They weren't even going to address the topic at all. Uh, they ended up agreeing to the WGA terms almost exactly, uh, including safeguarding writers against abusive practices that were circumventing fair pay practices and guaranteeing a minimum writer's room size, while also awarding producer titles to a minimum number of writers in the development rooms, which is another big deal because that was part of the process that the writers said that they were getting kind of cut out of by being stuck in these development rooms, then not getting to work as producers so they could see their scripts get shepherded through the system and be on set and that could help them with the training for the writer to become showrunners one day, things like that. So all that stuff at the beginning of the strike was deemed completely not start non-starters. It was assumed of anything they were going to have to give up those goals. And they ended up not just meeting halfway with the with the unions, but the unions ended up getting almost 100% of their asks in that respect, which was really surprised even the people who were looking at this closely during the negotiations. Another area, this one you most likely have heard about, the creation of streaming residuals. Really big deal, right? So we found that the uh, WGA was granted equitable minimums for streaming variety talk and game shows. Um, th that means that like early in the strike, we heard stories about shows like, for instance, the Amber Ruffin show, that's a Peacock talk show, wasn't getting uh, paid minimums at all. Like they could basically set the contract for whatever they wanted, even though it was essentially the same show that if it had aired on a network TV show or on a network TV channel, um, there are now established minimums for those things, even if they're on streaming. That's a really big deal. Uh, we also had uh, mandated any studio moving a soap opera to streaming has to now negotiate directly with the WGA for fair terms. Uh, they didn't specify what fair terms would be considered in the deal, but it is meaningful that they will actually have to go through the union. They can't just negotiate directly with the writing staff of the show, uh, which presumably will give them added protection if that does happen, which it already has. People might not know this, but Days of Our Lives moved from network to streaming, and that was very disruptive for the writers there. Uh, so if that happens again in the future, there'll be a lot more protections. Uh, and that's a, that's, a, that's a significantly big deal because unlike all of the other areas of the entertainment industry, soap operas just continued to work. They hired a bunch of scabs yeah. who wrote scripts and got 
basically no blowback for that because that's just standard operating procedure for soap operas for some reason. Uh, so the fact that they were able to gain any uh, gains uh, in that sector, I think, comes as a pleasant surprise. Go check out um, Alan Sarapa. Uh, I don't. I probably butchered his last name. Uh, yep. His latest column, Alan Soapbox, so which one of the most popular columns on the site, uh, wrote all about the scab writing situation, of course, injecting his own Alan way of talking about things, which is very <laughs> hilarious. Uh, go check that out, which really breaks down a lot of this stuff. So moving on, we also still in the streaming uh, residuals uh, topic, uh, featured films, right? Uh, now, fe- any feature film that is over, that is 96 minutes or longer uh, with a $30 million budget or more. Uh, will now be eligible for streaming residuals. Uh, it's going to increase uh, 18% to the initial compensation and 26% increases in the residual base. And if the viewership equates to 20% of the streaming services subscribers within 90 days of release, they will get an additional 50% bonus. Um, that is kind of the viewership ratings reward that was negotiated. Those terms, uh, the 20% of the streaming services subscription within 90 days, getting a 50% bonus is also extended to TV shows uh, that that um, fit that same rubric. So that is basically the compromise that they came up with in terms of getting uh, some transparency on the books for streamers to say who is watching their shows, how many people, what shows are successes, and getting the writers paid for having successes. Now, what's notable here is that they don't actually let us know. In fact, they are sworn to us a confidentiality agreement, um, but that is kind of uh, unfortunate for the public and does in some tangential kind of like on the periphery ways impact writers uh, because you only know if your show is a success, if your show is a success. So, and if you are a writer who wants to pitch a similar show, you don't know, okay, well, that could also be a success. You don't have a sense of the market unless you're a player that is actually making money. Um, But that's, that's a good problem to have versus not being able to know if you are entitled to money in the first place. So it's a major first step in terms of establishing this. And I think that uh, people are going to be pushing for greater transparency down the line, uh, especially with the tag uh, terms. And also advertising is in streaming now too. And they also want to see what shows are successful and what shows are not. So all of that, I think this is the first step in a process of transparency, but it is a step that is going to significantly increase the amount of people who are getting paid uh, for their streaming uh, successes. And that's good. This also doesn't include uh, library streaming successes. So like when Suits, Bill's favorite show Suits, blew up on Netflix over the summer, <laughs> this wouldn't count towards that. It only counts towards new shows that are on that are made for a streamer. Um, but I think that's, again, a good first step. And certainly uh, much, much more than what the studios were willing to do even a month ago when it came to this. The, the proposal back at the beginning of, or at the end of August was we will let six WGA members uh, see some ratings data that they are sworn to secrecy on and cannot act like have any actions uh, related to it. So that was unacceptable. That was only about a month ago. So th- this is a big leap from where they started on that front. Last major area is, of course, artificial intelligence. Uh, AI, I'm just going to read to you in detail the section on, a, on AI, which was in their uh, statement about what their gains were, uh, because it's a little bit technical language, and I don't want there to be ambiguity about what was given and what wasn't, and I feel like there has been in some of the reporting, so I'm just going to give you exactly verbatim what is written. AI-generated written material will not be considered literary material, source material, or assigned material. AI is not accredited writer. 
AI can, uh, a writer can elect to use AI as a writing tool if the company consents and all internal company policies are observed. Company cannot require a writer to use AI software. A company must disclose to a writer if any material provided to the writer had been AI-generated or incorporated AI-generated material, and the Guild reserves the right to assert that exploitation of writers' materials to train AI is prohibited. So, that's all of the terms, all of the major issues covered, all of the sectors of the, of the union uh, issues addressed. Josh, we've been very pessimistic in our recent conversations on this strike over the last few months on the podcast coming out the other side of the writer strike at least how are you feeling about all this feeling like the writers won like emphatically like without a doubt like no no other way of interpreting it like i think the the studios caved the writers won i, I mean that's the biggest takeaway um that i have i mean this was the second longest strike in hollywood's history um, the, the longest one was like 80 years ago in the 40s. So we have never seen this kind of um, battle in our lifetimes. And the, the writers just stuck with it. They, they didn't give up. And ultimately, they, they really cashed in in significant ways in all of the major areas that they were trying to uh, fight for. It's it's impressive, and I think it bodes well for the uh, the actor strike. Bill, you were once upon a time the most optimistic of the bunch, uh, and then I think became quickly the most pessimistic of uh, of the three of us, um, as I think is Welcome. pretty typical you know. for you, right? We kind of just yeah. go up or down. So uh, now that we're out on the other side, how are you feeling? Uh, it's a typical Irish in me. What can I tell you? Uh, so <laughs> I am, I, I, you know, I when we first talked about it, I was like, I think the studios are going to cave quick because they need the content. Uh, it didn't come quickly, but it, it did. It did kind of. I did kind of predict a little bit of it. But the thing I think that's very interesting that you said was the the residuals on the streaming for films with that certain budgetary thing. Just think about how films are going. Like how the quick turnaround to streaming is these days. Where you know, the, unless you're Barbie or Oppenheimer or you're a very special movie, the box office has not been the best for a lot of these films. So all of a sudden, now you're going to get a second life here. And we've seen before, and of course, do I have examples? Of course I don't. Uh, but we've seen films that have done okay at the box office actually have good life on streaming. And this and this has always been the case. Like, we have had films that did okay in theaters do great as rentals. I remember The Net with Sandra Bullock was a huge, like, rental. Like, they made so much of their budget back and so much profit just based off rentals as opposed to, like, bo you know, box office. So that's going to be great for someone who's like, the cinema isn't what it is or what it used to be. And now it's like, oh, here we are. And I can make some more money this way. So uh, just to clarify, I don't believe that this agreement actually covers that situation. I believe that these that these residuals are only apply to uh, feature films that are produced for the streaming service. Specifically. I do not believe that they apply to a, a, a catalog uh, or a library feature, which is the case that you explained. So that's good that we keep my incorrect statement in there so people don't jump to the same conclusion. <laughs> but However, here's the thing. I, I do think it is it's a little bit complicated. Sure. And, but, the, but the good thing is here is that that was an area that the, the, library, um, the library value, right, uh, to streaming service is something that was left on the table this time around. Like they just did not, that, right. that was, I believe, part of the compromise was like, we're not going to touch that. But once you establish a residual, right, once you establish it, the history of Hollywood is once a residual is established, 
established in a contract negotiation, future contract negotiations expand the size and scope of that residual, which is why the studios were so against establishing a streaming residual in the first place. Well, now so, you, yeah. So with but, that in mind, this is a door opening to, in the next time around, three years from now, being able to do exactly what you're saying, which is get streaming residuals in that capacity as well. well well, for the, or, so we're essentially the residuals are going to be going to originally produced series and or films for Correct. a streaming platform. Hey, that's great for a show like us. Like you know, we've seen how many of the you know they getting that flat rate. It's just like okay, you've been paid for this, and that's it. And that show could go on to be a massive hit. And unless you're Stranger Things, where you can go renegotiate your contract and probably right. get well, paid, and a also ton. even with Stranger, yeah, Stranger Things, Things, who gets to who gets to renegotiate the contract? The Duffer Brothers get to. All the people in the writers' room aren't getting to renegotiate their contracts, yeah. right? So that even that they are those people are were in the last model being exploited and are now going to have much fairer terms, which is a good thing. Yeah. And I think that's great because it always just felt like okay, well they had at the box office, you know, if you, your film is released, well, we're, we're, how are you making any money off the back end of these, these made-for-streaming films or a series? It's just like it happens. And then yeah. it's just like, okay, you're done, thanks. We now could, you know, especially if you're marketing, it's like now we could just sell ads to the latest season of The Boys or the latest spinoff of The Boys, which spoilers we'll be talking about later. And if, say, that's a massive hit, well, you got paid once and that's it. Fair as that. Josh, Bill talked a lot about the streaming residuals as an area that was interesting to him. Is there an area of the deal that uh, the writers gained on that you find particularly interesting or worth talking about before we move on? For me, the biggest part was the minimum writing rooms, um, because I know that had been a huge point of contention, um, especially like the, the the real like problematic prevalence of mini rooms that have been popping up, um, really squeezing out writers. Um, and so I, I forget what the exact breakdown was, but it was um, for, for shows of six episodes or less, you know, a certain number of writers required from like six to 12, an, another set, and then from 13 plus uh, another set minimum. And that's, once again, huge. I mean, that is going to make sure that one, you know, people are not going to be overtaxed and having to write, you know, a, you know, 22 season, uh, 22 episode worth season worth all by themselves. Um, but also going to make sure that there are more people having opportunities to be included in this process and, um, I mean, open more doors for them in terms of getting, you know, those showrunner credits at some point, um, you know, becoming a producer at some point. So for me, that was the biggest, although I'd say a close second would be the, um, the whole AI of it all, uh, just because that had been, again, another point of contention. And I'm glad that you spelled it out, uh, Alex, or kind of read verbatim from me. It is a very kind of linguistically uh, convoluted um, part of the contract or part of the, uh, the deal, but it is one that I think we're going to see, you know, be a big factor moving forward as I guess the studios and the writers decide, okay, now how much do we actually implement this? Like now that we have this deal in place, do we open Pandora's box and do we try to use AI to a degree or, you know, is it just like, nope, we're not even going to go there anymore. We've decided this is too much. It was just a secret invasion, opening credits, and, and nothing more, nothing nothing further than that <laughs> when it comes to AI. Uh, but yeah, Josh, I, I fully agree. I think that the, the development thing was the one that, the development rooms, is what really 
struck me as the most surprising of, of all of the games because that was such an area, like I said initially, such an area where all the reporters, all of the studio side sources said, this is a non-starter. We're not negotiating on this. We are not giving into this. We want to have all rights in terms of being able to experiment with size and scope of writers' rooms. We're not going to litigate this. This is just, we're, we'll focus on other areas. We are not going to engage. And like I said, not only did they engage at the end of the day, they gave them pretty much exactly what they wanted. Like you can go on to the WGA uh, contract 2023.org. You can find the details. They have this great breakdown where it says what the initial uh, writers ask was, what the studio's uh, counter proposal was in May when the strike ended up uh, happening. Um, in many cases, that counter proposal was we are not counter proposing. Um, so, but in some cases, they did give, and in some cases, they had a counter proposal that was way below what the writers were asking for. And so you can really see the breakdown of what those two points were on the grid and then what the ultimate deal was. And if you compare what the writers were asking for in the development rooms to what they gained, it's almost verbatim exactly what they requested. So I think that's just really surprising in a way that's very encouraging. It really showed that they were in a position of strength in a way that the studios were just fully unprepared for. They did not think that they would be there because they were just playing the old playbook from 2007 over again in 2007 you know, once a strike dragged on, there it started to fracture. There started to be a lot of pressure inside of the guild to kind of make a deal, and people were suffering, and, and, and there was not as much unity as there was now. Like, now the biggest complaint was, well, I feel like I can't speak out against this on, on social media because I might get in trouble. It's like, well, that probably was true. That was the culture of it. And uh, I think that that's not the best. If you feel like you have a fair criticism of your leadership, you should feel empowered to make it in an appropriate way. But you do see the the consequence of that, which was there was public unity and that did actually help create a deal that worked well for everybody. So, you know, there's something to be said about that as well. Um, yeah, and I think the other detail that I haven't included so far in this conversation is just that there is a, uh, a showrunner opt-out uh, when it comes to the writer's room size where a showrunner, if he so chooses and wants to do what someone like Mike White does or someone like Taylor Sheridan does allegedly uh, and write all of the shows that he's writing on his own by himself without a room, he is allowed to do that. Uh, so even though there are these minimums, a writer, a showrunner can choose to write on his own if he wants to, uh, which was early in the strike. And if you remember this, there was some kind of like trying to put a little bad blood in the press around writers saying, oh, well, you know, showrunners don't want to have to ha hire a bunch of people in the writer's room because Taylor Sheridan just wants to write his own show, you know? Um, and that wasn't coming from Taylor Sheridan. That was probably coming from the studio trying to cause some discontent and it didn't work and they ended up having that negotiation point um in place because ultimately i think the writers guild wants to represent the interest of all writers and that means if you want to only write with one uh a writer's room of one then you should be allowed to and otherwise you should be have the opportunity to get staffed and i think that that seems like a fair balance as long as the studio isn't pressuring people to take that uh option which of course if they were, they could probably file a union complaint against them. So that's the benefit of having a union. Uh, you still have additional protections there as well. Uh, but we're not, the strike season is not over because SAG-AFTRA is still on strike. Uh, because of that, the Hollywood studios, for the most part, are still shut down. Yes, writers are working and getting paid. That's huge. Uh, a lot of people in production uh, production studios who were furloughed and uh, not able to work are now also being able to come back to work. Uh, but 
most people in Hollywood still out of work. The Teamsters, the, the Grips, the PAs, all of those people who work on the actual productions, uh, those productions are not in production right now. So if you want to support those people and the actors who are out on strike still, you can go to entertainmentcommunity.org to donate to the Entertainment Community Fund because those people still need our help and we're getting into the holiday season and this writer's strike is over, but the SAG strike is at least a month away, possibly longer. So people are still in need and uh, any help that can be uh, given responsibly uh, is requested. And uh, you can go to that website now. Bill, a last word on this before we move on? Yeah, I, I, it's, it just is a bit mind-blowing that it just all came together so quick and they the studios just gave them everything. Like, it still doesn't feel real. You know what I mean, Alex? It's it's just like we were like saying like you we you and I have talked offline about this for a while. Like th- we were we were thinking both strikes were gonna go into the new year, and all of a sudden it's like, hey, we're meeting. Okay, cool. We gave you everything you wanted. Yeah. It's just <laughs> and and uh, I think what you made, Alex, you made a great point a few podcasts ago, or maybe Josh, you had mentioned this too. Is the studios were able to blame individual people who are the you know who are making all these absorbent amount of money per film, but now it's the studios have made it about them themselves and the IP. It's not Denzel Washington and Will Smith and, and Sandra Bullock. It's Marvel and Star Wars and DC and all these other things. And, and now it's IP. So it's the studios who are like, everyone's looking at the studio saying like, no guys, this is you. And then every CEO just forgot how to, what public relations were and just said the literal worst things they could say for themselves business-wise. And after a pandemic, like, the, the the public is on their side, on the side of those striking, because we all want to be treated well, and a lot of us weren't. I don't know if I can speak for everyone, but a lot of us weren't. A lot of us work ridiculous hours for not great money, and we have more empathy and sympathy for those striking than I think ever before. I think we always thought of Hollywood as the elite, not as the everyday person who is making, you know, maybe $50,000 a year working in Hollywood, who now is like, how am I, I got to go to the food pantry to feed my family because I'm on strike. I think we have more sympathy for people now more than ever. Yeah. And I think a part of that is because, you know, 10, 15 years ago, the people who knew that were in Hollywood were the people who were making all of the money, right? They were the famous people. And now thanks to social media, for better or for worse, we get to hear a lot from a lot of other people who are just grinding it out and, you know, not the most famous people on the planet. And so that is just awareness is higher. And then number two, the point that you were referencing is something that I did say a few months ago, which is, you know, studios wanted to kill the cable bundle. They wanted to kill the movie star and they wanted to develop personal relationships between their company, their corporation and their consumers. So that way they could have, they go direct to consumer. That's the industry term. Um, And that meant that they could cut out all the middlemen and they can get all of the money. And you know what, if you develop a personal relationship with somebody so that you can have all of the money and all of the control, that means you also have to deal with all of the other bullshit that comes along with it. And you have to get the heat, you get to get the heat then, you know, if you tell me I'm the guy who is in charge, I'm the guy giving you all the stuff. And then I get to be the guy that you complain to and complain about. And so I think that was maybe a little bit of something unintended uh, consequence of that, that definitely bore fruit because now we all have personal relationships with Disney and Apple and Amazon and uh, NBC universal. And a lot of those relationships are not great. <laughs> I like how you did. I like how you did not include Warner Brothers discovery in that. Cause it's like, well, we don't have a relationship. With well, it's hard to have a, it's hard to have a personal relationship with a company that has a different person in charge of it every uh, like 16 months. So, you know, <laughs> MGM plus, let's not forget that. 
our good well, friends. Our, our good friends at MGM Plus, who uh, that is all we will say on that subject. Uh, speaking of streaming services that some people might know exist, uh, it's time to have another installment of the Streaming Wars, where we talk about who's up and who's down in the world of streaming. Bill, this month, who do you got? I am actually going to go with Amazon Prime video because man it's football season was back in a big way so you know you're gonna have that wheel of time season two um on everybody's lips (laughs) yeah but guess what (laughs) it was a top streamer this month like it did big numbers and i could not believe that it did huge numbers like it did but also uh you know the show we're going to talk about gen v another one from the boys and then Invincible is going to be starting right out. That was announced as soon as Gen V is over. Invincible's new season will start there. So um, that's what Prime's going to get for me. The football stuff, I, I don't think, like, if you're just the average everyday TV viewer, like, football draws, like, insanely big. And that Thursday night football, they have put some pretty good games on there. Josh, I think you can back me up. The, the games have been much better this year than in years past. Uh, but Bill, does, does, does Prime Video Thursday Night Football let you see your favorite NFL players as Toy Story characters? First off, <laughs> let's talk about that, because that is almost why Disney Plus won the month for me. And it was fucking incredible. And like in real time, they did the side-by-side, and it was, it, it was great. I loved every second of it. I would watch it again, as long as it's not a Giants game, because I, I just can't Truly do that. Truly deranged content. <laughs> it was fucking incredible. It was incredible. I watched this morning. I showed it to Sophie. She thought it was amazing. Um, and you know what? This is how I get her to watch football again. Outside of her teacher last year, giving her no homework when the Giants won. This is the way I got to do it. Um, but Prime, but Prime's going to get it because of this. I mean, they've 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 got some good shows on there that, and I I don't think I think this is going to be their quote unquote you know pun intended Prime month. It's just like they have the, all these things popping at the same time. Disney Plus was a second for me, given their movies and some of the new series. And holiday time is always a big Disney Plus time. But to me, I'm going to go with the the return of football. A new incarnation of the boys, which I'll get into my thoughts on soon, and Wheel of Time surprisingly doing well. Another uh, Prime Video news that might contribute to your cause, or might uh, contribute against your cause, Bill, is the news that uh, Prime Video is going to be creating a mandatory um, ad tier. I say mandatory because it is opt-out instead of opt-in, like most of the ad tiers that have been rolled out in streaming. What that means is basically starting soon... Anybody who watches anything on uh, on Prime Video will have to watch advertising, and if you want out of that, you're going to have to add uh, the premium tier of Prime, uh, which would be an additional $3. Uh, my theory on this, and I think I said this on Social Distance, is that they're doing this to see how many people actually use the service, uh, because right now um, it's unclear how many people care about Prime Video at all, uh, or only occasionally watch things because they uh, like to get their uh, toilet paper shipped directly to their home. So it's unclear right now. Uh, this is going to help them monetize things. Uh, the way that I've had it described to me, or explained to me rather, is that basically because Prime Video is an add-on feature that most people are not subscribing for directly, uh, Prime is uh, Amazon is looking at it as basically a free service that they're giving away, just like an, a nice treat that they give their members. And so because of that, um, they feel like they're entitled to adding advertising to the base tier because uh, they're not monetizing it. They're basically just giving it away for free, unlike their competitors who are monetizing it directly by getting $9 a month, $10 a month, $15 a month just for the streaming service. So it's freebie. 
but not freebie. Yeah, I guess basically. I mean, freebie is different because you don't need a you don't need a subscription yeah. at all. You don't need a login. You don't need anything. You can just access it. Now, most people access freebie content on Prime Video unaware that there is a separate service called freebie, and they just are like, "Oh, these have commercials. Cool. I don't know why." Um, so there's also that. But they, you know. Prime Video, it's trying its best, and uh, I support you, Bill, in your choice, even though I uh, disagree. But Josh, which one did you go with? Oh, well, you guys already set me up with the Toy Story NFL <laughs> collaboration. Oh, it, was, it was so close, Josh. It, it was a lap. Uh, no, I, I turned that on this morning, um, and I was next to my wife, and she asked, what in the world are you watching? And <laughs> it's like, I can't explain it. Don't worry about it. But it was, I think... One of the most clever moves that yes. Disney has done um, with their sports coverage in a long time. And it's not totally novel in that um, NFL, I think CBS has been doing some collaboration with Nickelodeon, Nickelodeon. Yeah. In, in the last yes. few years. Um, but this was on another level. The, the Nickelodeon collab was just like, okay, we're going to throw a few different graphics in. Like, we're going to have some fun interviews um, but this with the like the complete redesign of the the world to match Andy's room from Toy Story, that was I mean one could say unhinged, but I would also say very creative. Um, and, and I think the it works. Technology too, Josh. You, you hear about the technology? They basically put a chip in everyone's shoulder pads, so it, it mimics the moves. And they've done this side by side video, and it was it's it's crazy how accurate it was. Yeah. Like, so if you're a football player, right, and you're like, my dream is one day to play in the NFL, I'm going to be on national TV, it's going to be amazing. And then you finally get that chance, and you get your first snap, and it turns out that you are like, you know, the Mr. Potato Head. Like, I feel like you're, well, you're upset wasn't. about that. <laughs> it wasn't. They, they were basically little versions of the players. They no, weren't, okay. it wasn't. It wasn't like Trevor Lawrence, quarterback for the Jacksonville Jaguars, was Woody. You he know, wasn't he Woody. was. Okay. He was like, what they do is like they all come out and they all turn into toys and stuff like that, and then like all the other ones are like you know the actual Toy Story characters are around and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah. Okay. But also they will be on TV, regular TV too. So it's not sure. Yeah. Yeah. But they were they were action figures. But it, again, I think it worked. The technology of it was incredibly impressive, and no, I, I think it was a good way to bring in a new audience. Like you mentioned with the uh, the news of Taylor Swift being at an NFL game, the NFL just is starting to bring in all new people uh, this, this last week, uh, intentional or not. Um, so that was one big thing, and that's you know the most recent thing they've done. We already mentioned Ahsoka being uh, another huge win for Disney+. Plus. Uh, on top of that, we have Loki Season 2 coming out um, later this week. Um, so that's yeah. going to be a huge draw. Um, I know it's something that the two of you will be covering on Bill versus the MCU. So definitely looking forward to hearing your thoughts about that once you cover that. Um, and then in addition, we also had a lot of big releases from um, some of the summer blockbusters over at Disney. So we had the little mermaid hit Disney plus um, we had elemental hit Disney plus movies that did pretty well in the box office, but have really kind of like skyrocketed now that they've gone to streaming. Um, and so that's been, you know, pretty impressive. And then not only did Disney Plus have the um, the live showing with the uh, NFL this morning, they also did an, another live uh, first episode premiere of Dancing with the Stars. So they are starting to really, you know, kind of flex their muscles and, and get into this um, live uh, premiere business or the live TV business on this platform. So I'm 
you know, excited to see what they'll do next. And finally, I have to admit the, the biggest news is that they have the entire Air Bud collection now on Disney Plus, which wow. is wow. Wow. Really buried the wow. lead, Bill, uh, Josh. Sorry. That's just something Bill would say. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I had Air to say, guys. Oh, so and, and even Josh, the Christmas buddies, like everybody, Air Bud in space, you got all of it is there now? Oh, I think so. I I don't I don't deal with the the buddies. I'm 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 here just for the the basketball playing dog. I see. Uh, and uh, of course they have all their Halloween stuff. You buried Lee Josh. We're gonna get the colorized version of Werewolf by Night. Yes, that too. No, he put that Alex... exactly where it deserves. Oh, Alex is just like uh, the the movie that drove him crazy last year. Like, when is it coming out? <laughs> now I'm like, you're gonna get another version of it. He's just like, boo. <laughs> I hate it. It was made to be black and white. It just feels really cynical that they're putting it out in color now and being like, well, I have an artistic reason why I wanted it in color a year after I told everyone I wanted it in black and white. Like, okay, buddy, sure. Hey, maybe we find out where Man-Thing goes after. Maybe we get some... I think we found out where Man-Thing went afterwards, and we're going to talk about it in a little while when we review Gen V. But uh, in the meantime, I got my <laughs> topic. Uh, my answer for this one is, of course, uh, a streamer that has not gotten enough love, and I think rightfully so. Uh, but I'm going to stand up for it this month. It's called Max. I don't know if you guys have heard of it. Max, uh, they made some pretty major news this month. Back to the old school like new press release is driving my victors uh remember that was all we did back in, in 2020 but uh then all the streamers came out and we could judge what they were actually doing but here we got a big press release uh max getting a sports bundle vr sports add-on one of the single worst branding choices i've ever heard in my entire life that is literally what it's called it's called the vr sports add-on and this um, is your winner it's my winner because you know what they may suck at naming things. I think we have well established that. But the service seems pretty cool. It's going to be coming out uh, this week uh, on October 5th, and it's going to be free to max users until February 29th, 2024, which is shockingly only a few months from now. I feel like 2024 can't possibly be a couple months away. I feel like it has to be at least seven or eight years away. I don't know how time works in that respect. But in any case, you'll get uh, you'll get this add-on for free uh, for six months, which is a pretty nice deal to open up once it is no longer free. A uh, little less nice. It's uh, $9.99 a month extra on top of your max subscription, which is, of course, $9.99 with ads, $15.99 uh, basic premium, and $9.19.99 uh, premium advanced, whatever the fuck they call it. I think it's like ultimate max, which basically means you get it in 4K. Uh, I don't need 4K uh, for $20 a month. That's okay. Uh, but... Uh, so that is going to be pricey once we get there. But what it is offering is pretty substantial, especially if you no longer want to subscribe to cable because you are getting live MLB games. You're getting live NHL games. You're getting live NBA games. You're getting live U.S. national soccer team, men's and women's. That adds up to 300 live sporting events that are going to be simulcast on the service uh, when they air at on TBS, TNT, and True TV. Uh, and you're also going to be getting additional Bleacher Report news. That's the BR in the BR Sports add-on. <laughs> um, so you're going to get additional Bleacher Report news, highlights, and documentar- uh, documentary content as well. So it's a real value uh, if you don't want cable, If you don't, because what you've got to yeah. compare it to at that point is like the sort of Hulu plus live TV or one of those over-the-top 
uh, like digital cable bundle things that are offered now. Um, and, and those are pricey. Those are like $60 a month. So um, if you compare it to that, the $9.99 a month extra is not too bad at all. Uh, if you compare it to the ESPN Plus bun- in the bundle, then that seems a little bit high. But ESPN Plus doesn't have anything close to this level of no. live games. So that's major. And I think that that is a huge advantage that uh, Max has now that other streamers don't. So that's a big deal. Other stuff coming, uh, in addition to uh, what we're going to be talking about in Gen V, <laughs> um, uh, other stuff coming is True Detective. The trailer dropped. Yeah. Um, we have executive produced Barry by Barry Jenkins, who, of course, is excellent. Uh, he's not writing or directing it, but he did tap Issa Lopez to write and direct every episode. You might know her as the director of the uh, indie film Tigers Are Not Afraid, which I've heard is very good. Uh, she has multiple projects in development with Guillermo del Toro and separately with Blumhouse, so major people are backing her. Uh, Barry Jenkins I think is the coolest person to have in your corner. Um, but uh, yeah, so it's going to be starring Jodie Foster, uh, kind of bringing back her whole uh, Science of the Lambs vibes on an, an investigation into the occult uh, in Alaska. Uh, and it also is going to feature people like uh, Christopher Eccleston, Fiona Shaw, and John Hawks. So a lot of really cool people who are really good at acting. Uh, very awesome. That's going to be coming out January 14th. We were hoping before the end of the year, but now we know for sure it's going to be January 14th. So that's good news. And to tie it all off at the end, we also have our Flag Means Death season two finally coming back. That was a show that kind of took the internet by storm over the summer a couple years ago. Huge hit. One of those hits that just kept growing and growing the further away it got. Uh, And I'm very excited for this show to come back. And I think it's going to be a huge hit for Max. And Max has kind of been needing a hit uh, when it comes to the content side of things. So big, big deal. That comes back this week as well. I'm really waiting for Max as I'm watching VR live right now for AEW. They, I'm really wondering when they're going to bring the wrestling part into it. It does, they do really good numbers for Warner Brothers Discovery on Terrestrial TV. They do good pay-per-view numbers for BR Live. They average over 100,000 buys at $50 a pop. It's good money. Um, so I'm wondering when they can assimilate it. My guess is that they don't have the literal technical ability to handle a pay-per-view situation right now in the app. I've heard that for a lot of streamers, yeah, that BR is... Live. Yeah, so I've heard that for a lot of streamers that to have the the capacity to do that is tricky right now. So I would say that by the time that those uh, wrestling deals get renegotiated, I think those TV deals have another year on them. Um, By the time that that's done, I think we're definitely going to see the wrestling packages getting added to this uh, sports service. Because like you said, it's a reliable audience that people will give you money to watch so like why wouldn't you do it if you already have the partial rights right now oh, i guess speaking of packages alex <laughs> let's get into our new show new series spotlight <laughs> yeah that's right it's time for our final segment of this and every month our new series spotlight where we discuss new series debuting this month and give our thoughts this month we are reviewing gen v prime video's latest attempt to convert the boys into a universe spanning franchise after their animated anthology series the boys presents diabolical debuted to mixed results last year this series was created by craig rosenberg an executive producer in the boys alongside evan goldberg and eric kripke uh michelle frezek Cass and Tara Butters, who you might know as the showrunners of Marvel's Agent Carter, once upon a time, served as showrunners for this first season. Uh, a very different vibe and tone, uh, but 
I think there you can see some of their DNA in, in what we end up getting. Uh, the series stars a talented young ensemble led by Jazz Sinclair as Rosalind Walker. Uh, oh, sorry, led by Jazz Sinclair, a.k.a. Rosalind Walker on Netflix's The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, for those of you who watched. Uh, she plays Marie Moreau, a new freshman at Godoquin University. <laughs> which I heard them say it so many times and I still have no idea how to say it, uh, who is a bloodbender with a horrifically tragic past. Uh, this show also features notable appearances by Clancy Brown, Patrick Schwarzenegger, and many others, and takes place at a prestigious superhero university in the same world as The Boys. Now, before we talk about this show, I want to get like a temperature check on The Boys as a franchise from both of you guys. Josh, are you a viewer of the boys? Have you seen any boys content in the last four years? I have not seen any boys content. All I know is that Dean from Supernatural plays like a twisted Captain America. That's all I know. I think that's in the third season. I've, yeah, I've heard he's very good in that capacity. Uh, okay, so you are not one of the boys. Bill, are you one of the boys? Um, sort of a boy. <laughs> So, uh, I definitely, I think I reviewed Boys, the first few handful episodes for the Pop Break way back when it premiered. Uh, so I probably say I saw about four plus episodes of the first season. I definitely didn't finish the first season. Okay. And neither of you watched the animated, um, uh, series, anthology series, Boys Presents Diabolical, correct? I I don't think many. I know that they covered it on our, on our, our friends over at Blurred Watchers covered it. And I know they were, if I remember correctly, Courtney specifically was very put off by the Aquafina episode because uh, her superpower was that she could animate her poops uh, and make them come to life and have them talk. And uh, mm-hmm. Courtney was not a fan un- of that. If I feel memory. like that's very on brand. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I think that that is um, from what we see. Never forget this is, of course, a uh, you know a Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg uh, production. And so, you know, they are the people who gave us Superbad and also the people who gave us Sausage Party. Uh, so, you know, there's going to be dicks. There's going to be crude humor. There's going to be weird uh, amounts of gore and violence but there's also going to be a heart to it at least that's what the attempt is and uh, I think the boys team uh, also want to have like a healthy dose of satire and social commentary and cultural commentary Uh, and you know I watched the first season of The Boys. I watched the full first season, and I thought it was okay. I liked the cast a lot. Uh, Jack Quaid was really good. Um, the woman who played Starlight, whose name I am forgetting, also very good. Um, Keith Urban, I am less into in that mode uh, because he's just kind yeah, of okay. like brusque, it's, kind it's of. Car- it's Carl Urban. <laughs> <laughs> Keith Urban is married to Nicole Kidman, and we all know heartbreak feels great in a place like this. But wouldn't we love to see Keith Urban be uh, that character from The Boys instead? It'd be a different take uh, for sure. Uh, <laughs> you've seen that, you would know. Uh, so yeah, Carl Urban, I should say, not a huge fan of him in that sort of like brusque kind of. I think like he's good in Star Trek doing that, but I don't need him to do that in every role. So I had some issues with it. I felt mostly that it was like, wow all this cultural commentary seems really dated and then i was like oh it's based off of a comic book written during the bush years got it that all checks out now (laughs) so i i never went back and watched the second or third season i kind of had some sense that i would at some point but it just just, the second season came out at a time when things were really busy and it just kind of got lower
word because for me, stuff that I like about it is also balanced with a lot of stuff that I don't like, which is the sort of like edge lord teenage boy sort of like, oh man, isn't it crazy when he exploded and, and you saw his dick? Like, you know, it's like, okay, I get it. Um, but that's not necessarily for me. Uh, so it, it's a tight balance that they try to walk in the boys. And I think a lot of that tone is on display here as well. But I'll say after three episodes, I watched all three of the premiere episodes that were out there. I think that this walks the tone a bit better than uh, the boys did for me. And I'm interested in continuing on. But uh, Bill, I'm curious if that's the case for you as well. Absolutely not. Okay. I have zero interest <laughs> in this fucking show. Like, it's just like as soon as as soon there were so many times where I was just like, oh, go fuck yourself. Like, like, like did not want to continue watching the episode. Like the whole beginning where it's just like, it's just like she, uh, the main character, Marie gets her period and then she weaponizes her period blood. I was like, fuck off. By accident. By accident. Yeah. But I'm just like, okay, cool. Oh, so, and then everything's by accident. It's this huge orgy of blood that's everywhere. And I'm just like, I don't fucking care. I mean, like, this is just shock value. Like, there's no soul behind this. Like, honestly. I, I, like, so when I, I think saw that there it, is soul and shock value. I think shock value is obvious, but I do think that there is soul underneath it. And I think because, you know, they're playing with this idea that this 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 is a metaphor for, you know, coming into your maturity as a woman, right? The fact that it's her period when it comes on is not a coincidence, right? They're trying to engage with these sort of uh, cultural issues around women and gender ideology. Uh, gender, women and gender identity and other areas of the show as well and sure. i think that they're trying to do that with that metaphor uh but they're also kind of trying to have their cake and eating it too with the sense of wanting to take it seriously but also wanting to shock you and take Make it over the top it. See, and uh, see, there's a lot the of like imagery of, of self-harm as a result and and yeah. i'm curious josh for you you i always trust your your judgment when it comes to this sort of thing uh do you feel like they are being responsible in their use of self-harm as a way to tell the story metaphorically or do you feel like they're uh on the wrong end of things in terms of exploiting it more for for shock value instead of actually getting to the heart like do you think they're being responsible in trying to strike that balance in a vacuum i think i would say that they were trying to be fairly responsible with it when it just came to like marie and her powers in the context of everything else that's going on in the show it doesn't feel like there's just a huge ick factor with everything in this show is this the biggest way I could describe it or the best way I could describe it. Um, so, because in addition to the Marie character, there is also a character played by Lizzie Broadway, who's kind of Marie's uh, roommate. Her name is Emma. Uh, she also engages in pretty uh, horrific self-harm. She is, uh, it, it, what it looks like is an eating disorder uh where when she purges uh she physically shrinks like ant-man and then when she finally eats she grows in normal size and obviously the metaphor there is very potent as well but again it also requires watching a lot of self-harm on screen so it's it's not a it's not a single uh, situation in the show it clearly is on their mind uh but yeah so do you think that they're executing that well, I, I think they executed well enough. Once again, when it comes to like the social commentary and the satire, when it comes to the rest of it, it just it just doesn't feel like they really wanted to do it for anything other than the shock value. At sometimes, 
Um, like I feel like they, they are trying to like have some larger commentaries, um, but I, I find it really hard to take that seriously when they then have um, Emma, the roommate, you know, using her powers in the ways that they do in this episode. It's like, if you're trying to like have a social commentary about it, okay, <laughs> but can you also be respectful of your characters or like, is it, I don't know. It, this, this show's a mess. Um, again, I, I, I knew some of this was to be expected. Like, I, I know that there's a, uh, a, a arc or an episode in the, the boys about hero gasm that is apparently a, a lot. Uh, so yeah. I was I've not watched that, but I've, I've heard tell. Yeah. So I was expecting something akin to that and that it, it pretty much delivered. Um, yeah. Kind of like what if, I don't know, adult swim was able to like get away with things or like robot chicken, but with some more social commentary, I'm not sure. So I, 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 I think like the way I, I, what I got out of it, um is it's like like you were saying alex they want their cake and eat it too it's just like the boys like i'm the first few episodes of season one that i saw like there is a lot of like i know sexual assault is a big topic in that and there's also the corporatism of superheroes and stuff like that so there is things that they talk about is done in a very shocking manner but i feel like there's more of a conversation it's not a perfect conversation by any stretch of the imagination but I feel like there's an effort to have a conversation at least. Whereas this, it's just like begrudging. It does like, it's like satire. It's like, I just feel like everything here is just like, well, the sh like the shock value is what they're going for. It's so radical and it's so out there. Now, again, I only saw the first episode, but the first episode to me just felt like such a juvenile, just like shock value, gross out, like, or, or like, this is cool. Like frat boy show that I'm just like, fuck it especially and then when they end the whole thing with what i thought was probably the most powerful part where the, the golden a literal character named what is it golden boy golden boy yeah 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 kills himself because of something that's there and then they hit it with um celebrity skin by courtney love i'm like fuck you you just completely undercut your show that is such a snotty shitty song that's about snotty shitty people and it's just like, you left us with such a powerful thing that this guy was going to be a part of this, the seven, this, this iconic group. And he was this, and then he ends up murdering the Godolnik, the head of this university, who is the, the end all be all on, on superheroes. And he is haunted by some sort of trauma that's there. And all of a sudden you're starting to get interesting and you utter, undercut it with a song where it's just like, ah, it's just a big fucking joke. Who cares? It's just, I'm just like, what are you doing? What is this show? Is it just excess and vulgarity for the excess and vulgarity of it all? Or are you trying yeah. to make a point? Like, that's the, I think that's that the part that, that song turned me choice, off. That song choice makes more sense once you watch the second episode to see what it is that that event is setting up. Because basically, then in the next episode, and Josh, you've seen the next episode, so you know, yeah. like, they are more so commenting on the cynicism of the people around the, the university and how they are going to no, kind I... of bastardize the image of this person who they were so willing to 
put up as like this champion of virtue and everything that's great about the university and they completely destroy and tarnish his image and say that he was a drug user who was mentally unwell and tear and tar him as this as this like basically like a lone gunman shooter kind of person on campus and that who just went off and and uses it as a way to kind of package a new hero to put on a pedestal instead so i think the cynicism of that song choice is less about the cynicism of the show and more about the cynicism of the world that the show is showing us. But I think that is a tension that the show is constantly trying to manage. And that is the part that put a bad taste in my mouth about the boys. And I think it walks the line for me on this show as well, because it's like, are you being, are you being satirical about cynicism or are you just being cynical? And at a certain point, it's hard to tell the difference, you know? But I think where it's where it's clear, at least, is in the performances of this young cast. And I think that's what's really kept me engaged with the show through three episodes, is that the cast is really strong. And it's mostly people that I've never seen before. And they are given really complex characters to play and put in really extreme situations. And I think that they are doing a really good job of grounding it in emotion. And it feels like a team is coming together in a way that feels naturalistic and that has something to say. But I really think that the, the ensemble that they're anchoring the show around is really strong and enough to keep going. But I agree with you, Bill. I think that that cynicism is a major problem. And it's something that, is, that has kept me from getting deeper into this world uh, throughout this project of The Boys on Amazon Prime because of that. Yeah, and I don't think they needed the cynicism of the song because they already established it well throughout the... It's established in The Boys and it's established here. It's just like you saved this woman's life, but you didn't get it on... You don't have Instagram, so you could have got all these likes and follows and you could have gotten to the crime fighting. Like, I don't need... The, the, like the, that was so heavy handed it's just like everything about that's I think the big problem is here it, everything is heavy handed yeah. it's just like there's no subtlety to this and like listen I know if you've listened to me on many podcasts like sometimes subtlety fall, flies over my head which is fine but it's also like I'm not that <laughs> like I just like it's just like <laughs> I get it, guys. Like, I understand what you're going for. It's also fucking stupid. Uh, and it's just like you're treating and it's it's just like I feel like it's just it's just such an unlikable show. However, I would be disingenuous if I didn't say Jazz Sinclair as Marie is excellent. I think she she is fantastic. She really, really yeah. is. And I think that chance uh, Perdoma, who plays Andre, kind of the male lead of the show, also very good. I think Lizzie Broadway, who plays Emma, has yeah. been in a lot of uh, complicated situations, and I think she is doing a really good job uh, to anchor that. I think Maddie Phillips, who plays Kate Dunlap, who's kind of like the uh, the Golden Boys love interest who has the power to uh, kind of uh, touch people and make them do what she wants. She is really good. I think she has kind of like a young Sarah Michelle Gellar quality to her on this show uh, that I was interested in. Um, we also have a character played called Jordan Lee, who is played by two separate actors actors uh london thor plays jordan lee when uh when they are female presenting and uh derek Le, uh play or lou uh, uh plays jordan lee when they are male presenting that's another character that i feel is kind of like uh, do they understand what they're really doing here because it feels like they're trying to play like oh uh, this is a non-binary character in a superhero universe so sometimes they're male sometimes they're female but i feel like if you talk to people who are non-binary uh oftentimes they kind of resent that implication that that's what being non-binary is it doesn't mean that sometimes i'm more of a man and sometimes i'm more of woman it means that i am non-binary i have a complicated relationship with gender identity uh so i think there it's like are we being clever or and saying making a point or are we kind of missing the point what we're saying so you know but the, but the performances are really good uh josh we haven't heard from you in a minute you said that you watched it 
into a second episode. So something grabbed you. What is it that kept you going into a second episode? I mean, I I was intrigued by the, the mystery they were setting up um, in the first episode. Like, okay, like, why is it that um, this Golden Boy character um, ends up acting the way he does at the end of the first episode? So that intrigued me. And I will also be uh, lying if I said that the, like, this season on Gen V with <laughs> random puppets did not <laughs> make me question like should i watch another episode of this um and, and the answer was probably not but i did watch a second episode and <laughs> i mean it there is a i don't know the, the, the mystery that they're setting up at least through the first two episodes it it hooked me enough to make me want to know like where it happens but not enough to like watch like this is something that i would gladly just like look the wikipedia entry up you know in you know two months and just like oh that's what's going on okay cool um but to, i mean to get there like i don't need to see all of the the self-harm um the just incredible like overuse of, of gore um and yeah like the the social commentary that sometimes works sometimes it's just like really ham-fisted and yeah tone deaf so no this this is a this is, this is show is not for me I, I think i can gladly say yeah and like as for me i think that it's like it's right i'm kind of like you know the judge on a law and order episode or like i'm gonna i'm gonna allow it but you're on a short lease mccoy like that's where i'm at with this show uh and we'll see how it takes me I, like i i do just think that the boys universe overall is just more cynical than i want and not because i am like loath to understand cynicism as a storytelling tool but just because it feels very disingenuous to be cynical about a thing that you were also doing. Like you're trying to satirize it in a cynical way, but you're also an example of the thing. Like I think the best example of this is this moment in the first episode where one of the characters who is in the uh, at the university is a uh, is an actress, and they're saying, "Oh, well, what are you up to right now?" And she's like, "Well, I'm actually uh, going to be in this elevated superhero uh, series. It's kind of like a uh, really a meditation on grief." told through 70 years of sitcoms and it's like okay that's a funny way of showing how the idea of wandavision sounds silly but also you are fucking doing that also so like it, you yeah. can't you can't hit us that hard on something and then also be a show about grief and trauma through superheroes you know it's like and that's the problem with the boys like they want to be like man look we have like on the on the boys they're run by this like evil corporation with a with a streaming service ha -ha. and it's like yeah but you are run by a streaming service with evil corporation and they're like exactly and you're like no but like do you actually get it like you can't you like it, you it, that is the problem that i have with with this universe and it's and it's not solved by this show but i think i would rather be on a college university which a bunch of, bunch of kids trying to do good in the face of all of that cynicism versus on the boys with a bunch of people at like the upper echelon of this universe uh being super cynical about stuff so i think that's for me why i'm i'm willing to give it uh the benefit of the doubt but i'm i'm also not i wouldn't be surprised if i get to the end of the season and i'm and similar to the boys i'm like okay i'm not going to do this again though <laughs> yeah it just feels like a lot but I, the, I said that i felt like there was a little bit of dna to the agent carter connection and what i would say is that there's a camaraderie between the team that is building, especially in the third seat, the third episode, that feels similar to the camaraderie that builds in Agent Carter, uh, his first and second season. There is like this kind of connection between like wanting to do 
good in the face of a world that doesn't want you to be there that Agent Carter exposed very well and explored very well that I think this show is trying to do in a different, you know, tone and texture. And so there are, you know, there I see that DNA and I see them trying to to, to finesse it. And that makes me more interested than what I felt like boys. Uh, but, you know qualified recommend i guess and i am not even the littlest bit surprised that the two of you didn't like it <laughs> but that's gonna do it for us uh that's the end of this podcast uh thanks so much for listening josh where can we find more of your stuff on the internet you got a column for us no no but, but <laughs> you do have many podcasts uh and please talk to our listeners about them yes i have so many podcasts so uh people can find me on the anverse brothers podcast which is both on the Pop Break Today feed and the Pop Break TV feed. Um, Aaron and I just recorded an episode um, earlier this weekend. We were talking about the 10th anniversary of Gravity. So um, highly encourage people to check that out. Um, and we are going to be recording this week on a uh, Ahsoka-related show. We're going to be talking about the 15th anniversary of The Clone Wars. And we are very excited to have special guest Amanda Rivas with us. We knew that we had to have the uh, human Star Wars encyclopedia join us for that. There was there was no doubt. Um, and uh, people can also hear more of my podcasting with Amanda on the new podcast for the Pop Break, the Anime Pop Podcast with a silent X in between, um, where every month we talk about anime, uh, including some feature shows that we want to promote, uh, the biggest news, um, and talk about just whatever's uh, on our mind. So we most recently covered the uh, second core of Bleach, as well as the latest season of Jujutsu Kaisen, which is a lot of fun. And uh, Amanda and I were really happy to also um, make a guest appearance with Alex on the Batman by the Numbers podcast with Dan Cullen, which was a whole lot of fun as we talked about Batman Ninja. Yeah, so I, it's been a busy, busy month, but uh, I'm, I'm glad to be here and uh, as always, have to record with you guys. Yeah, the the movie may have been just okay, but the conversation was stellar. So, and that's all we can ask for. Uh, as for me, you can follow me on Letterboxd and uh, X at Media Thinkings, although I am seriously considering deleting my account on X, so uh, stay tuned for that. Uh, you can also follow me uh, at Alex Marcus on Blue Sky. That would be preferable to X for sure. Uh, and you can also... Uh, follow my work on uh, The Pop Break by going on thepopbreak.com, clicking on the podcast tab. You can see all of the shows uh, that I am producing and uh, supporting and uh, giving my blood, sweat, and tears into. Uh, it's a lot of really fun stuff coming out of the network right now. Uh, Bill vs. the MCU. Uh, we have a new episode coming out next week on the LMD arc, uh, where which is season four, the middle part of season four, when uh, Agents of Shield gets kind of uh, has to confront what we are now as a society confronting, which is AI. Uh, so that's very exciting. We have a, a great guest, uh, SP Rupert from the Legends of Shield podcast, uh, is our special guest for that one. Definitely tune into that. He has been podcasting about. Uh, 
comic book content and Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. in particular uh, for a full decade. So we had a lot to talk about and it was excellent. Um, so definitely check that out on Pop Break Today podcast feed. Uh, and, uh, you know, unfortunately, we did have to lose Bill. He had some technical trouble, but I'm just going to say goodbye uh, on his behalf. So you can follow him at Bodkin Writes on X and uh, many other places. You can also follow him, uh, everything that he's doing over on the Pop Break.com. I uh, just wrote a really cool uh, editor column that you could read uh, that is uh, Pop 5, uh, where he gives some pop culture recommendations. Very cool thing that Bill did. Um, and then you can also listen to Socially Distance, of course, where he's covering Ahsoka and Loki season two uh, is coming up right around the corner. We had a really fun fall on Socially Distance with this, uh, with Amanda Rivas and sometimes Al Marino. Uh, so you can check out all of his stuff. And until next time, guys, uh, this has been TV Break. Thank you.